And this is NPR News. I'm Mike Mulcahy. Thanks for tuning in today. We're live at the Minnesota Capitol this Friday. Later in the hour, we'll talk about that legal marijuana bill that passed in the House this week. The Senate is debating its version today, and we'll hear some of the voices from the Minnesota Capitol this week. But first, let's zoom in on one of the big spending areas in a new two-year state budget, transportation. Everybody knows it's been a rough winter for streets and roads, but there are a lot of other issues involved with transportation besides just filling potholes. As things are shaping up, it looks like transportation spending is set to get a billion-dollar boost for a total of nearly $9 billion over the next biennium. Some of that money comes from the budget surplus, but in both the House and Senate bills, there are also plans to find new sources of ongoing revenue, funding for roads, bridges, and transit. Here to talk about transportation and how to pay for it are two key players in the debate from the House side. DFL Representative Frank Hornstein chairs the Transportation Finance and Policy Committee in the House, and Republican Representative John Petersburg of Wasika is the Republican lead on the committee. Thanks so much to both of you for coming in today. Good afternoon. Thanks for being. Uh, thanks for having us here. Appreciate it very much. It's nice to be talking about transportation. All right. Well, let me start with a question that the average person might have. Uh, $17.5 billion budget surplus this year. Uh, the big, financial, or the big uh, infrastructure law passed at the federal level. So there must be plenty of money for transportation. Is the average person wrong to think that, Representative Hornstein? Well, Mike, we have those sources of money, and they're, they're certainly significant. But we have a major shortfall in our ongoing revenue for transportation to fund roads, bridges, and the public transit systems that you mentioned. So while we will, uh, we have money in the bill to match the significant federal, uh, new federal resources, we do need money over the long term. We, uh, MnDOT has said we're $20 billion short over these next 20 years in terms of all of the basic needs that we have, uh, hundreds and hundreds of, of bridges that are still structurally deficient. Uh, many, uh, your listeners probably know, uh, getting around now has been very challenging with, with all of the potholes and the challenges. Hmm. Well, I can tell you that even though this is a seasonal issue, freeze-thaw that we have from time to time in difficult Minnesota winters, uh, MnDOT is telling us that one out of every 10 roads will be in poor condition by 2030. So we need this ongoing revenue just to fund our basic infrastructure. And Representative uh, Petersburg, do you agree with that, first of all? Uh, well, I think first we need to understand that there is certainly a need out there. Uh, one of the challenges we have is that the general public thinks that the because the transportation gets all of its funding through basically user fees, transportation, gas taxes, uh, uh, tab fees, etc., that there should be plenty enough money. However, um, that doesn't equate to the same as our general economy. So where the general economy gets dollars from everybody, uh, the transportation funding only comes from those that are basically using it. It's the one of the reasons why we think infrastructure, which is one of the core responsibilities of the state, is also responsible to every citizen, not just those that drive vehicles. And that challenge has come because of the fact that back when we first started the Department of Transportation and the road system, uh, the user fee was used just for the roads and bridges. Mm -hmm. 
Now transportation has become a lot more complex with providing the service of transportation uh, in, in transit, et cetera, which is an important uh, asset to the public. But the funding mechanism that we put in place for just roads and bridges aren't keeping up with it. Mm-hmm. It's the very reason that I, I believe that general fund is appropriate place to take some of those uh, monies and the shortfalls out. And, and some of the general fund money that you talk about comes from that uh, tax on uh, car parts and and repairs, right? Currently, right now, uh, we are only taking part of the auto parts, uh, somewhere I think around 145 a million dollars or so uh, for that. And we think that all of it should come from there. Uh, we understand that that does take away from the general fund, but we need to understand that transportation is so integral that there is no person, whether you're from the day you're born to the day you die, is not totally reliant on our transportation system. Hmm. And Representative Hornstein, uh, are you on board with taking more of that, more of a share of that sales tax money? Yes, we do have that provision in both the House and the Senate transportation bills. But that in and of itself will not be enough to really address these huge challenges we have all across the state. And so that's why we have other uh, sources of of new revenue to uh, balance that out. So, yes, that is part of the, the picture, but we... It's not nearly enough. It just barely scratches the surface in terms of the need. Well, let's talk about one of those sources because uh, in the House bill, there's a 75-cent fee on uh, deliveries you would get from Amazon, right, and and other places. Um, it's not in the Senate bill, though. Uh, w- tell us the reason for that fee, uh, how much it would raise, why, why did the, the House uh, feel it was necessary to put that in? Well, first of all, because we need this ongoing revenue to address this many, many needs that we have in our transportation system. The gas tax, which we, is, has been a traditional source of, of, of money, as, as Representative Petersburg mentioned, is a declining source of revenue. For many reasons, if you look at a, a chart, uh, the gas tax is, is, is not going to be sustainable over the long period of time. Uh, a delivery fee is a growing source of revenue. Uh, deliveries of many products is is a hundreds of billions of dollar industry and, and will be growing uh, by leaps and bounds when we look into the future. And there's a nexus between deliveries and, of course, our transportation system. So we felt that this would really be uh, a new and innovative and forward-looking uh, way to uh, address our needs uh, that is not a gas tax. And as we know, uh, gas prices are very volatile, whether it's the war in Ukraine or uh, the the goings-on with OPEC or this and that. And uh, it's it's volatile. It goes up and down. Uh, and I think this is something that is, is going to be more reliable for the long term. Mm-hmm. And Representative Petersburg, what do you think about the delivery fee? It has quite a few challenges, I think, and and whereas I understand the rationale for it, um, you know, it's very similar to the fuel surcharge that a lot of delivery people have already. Um, but uh, Colorado, for example, has got twenty seven cents as delivery fee, and they're having some troubles trying to deal with it. The original bill had forty five cents uh, delivery, and it got raised to seventy five percent. Excuse mm. me, seventy five cents because of the need to, to backfill. Uh, the spending side of of this particular bill, but I think it's it, my biggest concern with it is that it tends to be quite regressive, in that uh, as as regards to um, uh, 
the individuals that have to pay for it, a higher percentage of their salary goes to it. And I, I know Chair Hornstein has has another plea about regressivity, and and he may you know tell you his view of it, but it's still an issue that we have to have to deal with. And I know that there are some talks about changing, you know, what size. Um, company needs to charge it or not, mm-hmm. but that's still in the works. And so uh, for this go around, I think it's a little bit uh, premature because it's not really fully worked out. Uh, we'll see, but um, we're not really in, in favor of that uh, because of it, not only its regressivity, but because um, uh, it doesn't really address the needs into the future, in my opinion. And Representative Hornstein, give us the argument for Well, <laughs> Representative Petersburg and I are good friends. We we collaborate on a lot of issues, so he knows my arguments. I know his. <laughs> uh, but what he's referring to is that, um, you know, I answer that uh, argument around regressivity is, you know, it's very regressive when you hit a pothole and then have to pay hundreds of dollars to repair a flat tire. We've had many reports of that. Uh, when you hit, have to get a front-end alignment, again, hundreds of dollars, that's regressive. And so, uh, again, the return on investment that we get in roads and bridges and transit systems is so huge for our state. Uh, We move freight. We move people. We get from point A to point B. And and to be able to do that in a way that is safe uh, and uh, one doesn't have to worry about, uh, uh, you know, getting uh, uh, caught in a huge traffic jam – uh, you know, we we provide money for congestion relief. You know, these are investments that pay off into the future. And like I said, the most regressive thing is to have to repair your car because you hit a pothole. That's Frank Hornstein. He's a DFL representative from Minneapolis. He chairs the Transportation Finance and Policy Committee in the Minnesota House. Republican Representative John Petersburg of Wasika is here, too. He's the Republican lead on the committee. We're talking about a big piece of the budget puzzle uh, for legislators this year. It's transportation funding, and not just this year. I mean, as we've heard, this is a challenge, ongoing challenge into the future. Let me, uh, Representative Petersburg, ask you about the gas tax, because uh, we've talked a little bit about it, but uh, legislators passed... I don't know how many years, have been really reluctant to raise it. Um, and nobody's really talking about it this year either. Why not? Why not just raise the gas tax? For one thing, it tends not to be very popular with people. Um, remembering that there's been attempts to to not only increase it, but to put it on an automatic inflator, uh, to do uh, um, more like a sales tax in regards to that. And one of the things that that does is that doesn't that doesn't allow for stability. Uh, if you were to change a lot of that uh, forecast, for example, uh, the fluctuation that we've had over the last two years in high prices of fuel down to low prices of fuel would have really changed uh, the amount of dollars coming in. So the gas tax it needs to be something that's fairly stable and predictable, but we also have an understanding that we have declining consumption of fuel, which means that we are having declining revenue sources coming from it. And And again, because... Uh, gas taxes are basically user fees for those that are using it. And right now, the trunk highway system is paid 100% by those user fees. Uh, we think that it's time for the entire system, the entire uh, general fund, to start taking responsibility for some of that. After all, we don't we don't charge a surcharge on education or any of the other programs that we see as a core function of, of um, our, our uh, system. Uh, we don't think... It is here as well. It's time for us to really kind of distribute 
what the foundation and what that core structure is for our infrastructure. Mm-hmm. And uh, Representative Hornstein, uh, do you agree with that? I mean, is gas tax just not a, a place you can turn to uh, f- from well, here on out? When you look into the future, mm-hmm. uh, it is, as uh, Representative Petersburg correctly pointed out, a declining source of revenue. Uh, so we want to look at something that is, is going to be growing over time. Uh, and uh, I think this is, this is a, a really good way to address that problem. Uh, declining source of revenue because if everybody's dreams come true, there are a bunch more electric cars? Or? Certainly that's part of it. And, and more energy-efficient vehicles, people driving less. You know, one thing we haven't talked about yet is uh, public transit mm-hmm. uh, and uh, transportation is the number one source of greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, and so we have in our bill a number of different strategies uh, to address that. And um, we, we want to encourage people to have choices if, if they're not able to drive or don't want to drive. Uh, what are some of the options? And then, of course, as you pointed out, uh, Mike, electric vehicles are increasingly popular. Uh, still a very, very small, mm-hmm. tiny percentage of, of the overall fleet, but uh, that is slated to grow you know, significantly over the next 10 years, and then you're not going to have a gas tax uh, with electric vehicles. And I think uh, electric uh, car owners now pay $75 Correct. a year. Yes. Uh, would that go up uh, under your bill? Or well, we are, uh, the Senate has a, a kind of a working group to really look at the different options we have for uh, addressing the, the 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 revenue challenges that uh, you know increased electrification will have, and that's de- that's definitely something we're going to look at in the conference committee. Um, you know, on, on our side, we we don't have uh, we think the seventy five dollar fee is is sufficient for now, uh, but looking into the future, definitely we have to have that conversation. So there is there are some provisions we'll be looking at in the conference committee related to electric vehicles and funding. Well, let's talk a little bit about uh, some of the other forms of transportation. In the bill, I know there's, I think, $195 million for the uh, uh, the train Northern Lights Express, they call it, between uh, Minneapolis and Duluth. Uh, with all these challenges on funding transportation, is that really the best thing to be spending that much money on? Well, this is a project that has been vetted. It has been around for a while. Uh, passenger rail is very popular. Uh, if you look at some of the ridership uh, figures for for Amtrak, uh, it's growing as a as a, a means of transportation. It's a, another alternative to driving. Uh, we are able to leverage hundreds of millions of dollars of federal money uh, by making this investment. And so, there's a lot of excitement along this line. Um, we've had people from Duluth come down year after year. Uh, I think for the money, this is an excellent investment. And we've got to really look at passenger rail. Uh, passenger rail is, is very popular in other parts of the country. And again, with our new infrastructure bill, it, by the way, Mike, this uh, federal infrastructure bill is the most significant new uh, commitment on the, fe- on the part of the federal government to infrastructure since the New Deal. And so we want to access every penny we can get in Minnesota. So it's a very good deal for Minnesotans that we can uh, put a little bit of money uh, into this, um, relatively speaking, uh, uh, into this uh, Duluth line and get a big return for that. Representative Petersburg, I, I imagine most Republicans aren't uh, aren't too excited about that train. Yes, but it's for it's probably for different reasons than most people would think. Uh, I have great respect for 
for Representative Kornstein. He and I have been together since 2013 when we put together Quarters of Commerce. But our, our biggest concern is the fact that Minnesota is a large state, and we oftentimes think about everything as if we were all living within the metropolitan area in which we're consolidated. But the point is, is that we are really uh, diverse uh, between one part of the state and the other, and Chair Hornstein has done a great job of, of trying to balance that. But here's the deal. Uh, we have a changing behavior patterns in, in people's transportation and, and how they are moving themselves around. We heard when Northstar, for example, the commuter rail was put together about the projections about how it was going to be used and what subsidy it was. And our concern is with this idea that we need to chase the federal dollars. When I was farming, I used to farm, I would tell people some of the most expensive seed corn that I could plant in sometimes was the free bag because it didn't produce. And and that's my concern is, and I think most of our concern is that the numbers aren't going to materialize. And whereas we get the funding for the construction of this project, we are going to be on the hook for the subsidy in running it from this point forward. And that is a, a challenge and is something that I think people need to take stock in. Uh, we tried putting in a limit on what the state would be responsible for, but right now that is not in the bill and it, and it is kind of open-ended. But when you realize that the travel time on the rail is the same as if you take a bus, which already has the infrastructure to do so, uh, the price is probably about the same, or the bus may even be less, uh, and and that you still, at the end of the day, have to figure out transportation at the end of each end. It seems like maybe we are uh, putting the cart before the horse and we really don't have the foundational funding for it with all the other needs that we have throughout the state. Uh, I know it's a fun thing to do and people are excited about riding trains, but the point is that sometimes we have to create reality. Representative Hornstein, you want a last word on that? or? Well, I, again, this is uh, – we want to fund all modes of transportation, all parts of the state. And that's really our goal in putting this bill together. So it's roads, it's bridges, it's public transit systems, it's passenger rail, airports, biking and walking options, uh, all parts of the state, all modes of transportation. It's not just uh, one or the other. Uh, and so this is really part of that larger mix that we have in the bill. Well, let me ask you just a little bit about transit then because, um, you know, the the numbers have been down in terms of ridership uh, after the pandemic. Um, the LRT system in particular in the Twin Cities having all kinds of problems with security and crime and, and things like that. Uh, what does the bill do or what's the strategy to fix that? Well, the the transit funding, the new revenue for transit that we have in the bill, we have outlined priorities for that. And the priorities for that really are shoring up our local bus system and funding uh, rapid buses along both city streets and highways. And the local buses and these rapid buses, we call it bus rapid transit, mm-hmm. um, you know, have been very successful and uh, very resilient even during the uh, – uh, height of the pandemic and, and this phase of the pandemic as we as things re- return back to normal, uh, we are seeing the riders come back uh, to the local bus system. We have uh, money to electrify buses 
really, again, that's a very future-looking piece. And finally, uh, when you look particularly in the suburban communities, uh, there's a new form of transit called microtransit where people can get off the bus at their final destination, uh, dial up uh, their local transit agency, and then get a ride the last mile or two of their trip. And this is also funded in, in, the, in this bill, as well as new resources to make our light rail uh, system uh, safer. Uh, we've had uh, bipartisan support for this over the years. The House has passed uh, transit safety bills since 2019. I think this is the year we're finally going to get this into law, where we have more personnel on the trains, uh, checking fares, uh, helping people with different issues they may have. Uh, so that transit safety piece will be part of our bill as well. And this is all funded by an increase in sales in the metro, tax. In the metro. metro sales tax, correct. Um, Representative Petersburg, what do you think about that? You know, the probably the most controversial thing we've we've done so far this year has been the three quarters percent sales tax increase. Uh, the the governor only suggested one eighth of a percentage point, and this, along with the housing quarter percent, means that there will be a full one percent increase in sales tax in most of the metropolitan area, and and that's a, a quite a large funding mix. Uh, and it's the concern is is that we are aren't sure exactly where it goes. Now, I appreciate uh, the chair putting in a study to, to determine what is our post-COVID ridership and how we determine what are the behaviors of those that are riding it. Um, my concern is that we should probably wait for that report before we start thinking about increasing and expanding. Because if you increase and expand in a situation where you know, the future shows it's not going to be there, then you've kind of just wasted those funding sources, etc. I know for people that's who are impatient, uh, that's going to be too slow. But the point is that we should be pragmatic with the funds that we have. And to, to put that kind of burden on as a sales tax, again, is, um, to use loose term, regressive. Uh, sales tax is, is a regressive sales tax. It's going to hit everybody hard. Uh, and that's, that's a concern. We're almost out of time. Uh, I know that the sales tax is in the Senate bill. The delivery fee isn't. Um, how hard is it going to be to get a deal with the Senate? And if, assuming you do, when are people going to see the benefits of all this new uh, spending? You know, when are the roads going to be fixed, and when is congestion going to be less? Well, the conference committee process is uh, starting in earnest, not only for transportation but uh, throughout the uh, uh, state budget. And so we expect uh, to be meeting, and I'm very glad that Representative Petersburg will be part of this uh, conference committee. It's it's very, very important to have uh, voices uh, uh, from all over the state and and both parties uh, trying to work this out. Um, And we will, um, you know, commence this process early next week. And and what it is is that the House has positions, the Senate has positions. Uh, we negotiate those and, and come up with a, a final bill that, that both bodies can pass and the governor can sign. So that's really our goal is to uh, hash out the different positions and, and come to a consensus. And Representative Petersburg, just a few seconds left. Do you think you'll be able to sign off on a conference report? Uh, that's going to be a tall order, uh, but I will certainly be there to do what I can to make the bill as best as possible for for the entire population of state of Minnesota. Uh, Opposing views is always good, but sometimes it's not going to come.
That's Republican Representative John Petersburg of Wasika. You can tell maybe there feels a little outvoted this year. But uh, And DFL Representative Frank Hornstein of Minneapolis, who chairs the House uh, Transportation Committee. Thanks so much for coming by. Thanks for having us, and have a good weekend, everybody. Thank you so much. And this is NPR News. I'm Mike Mulcahy. It's one of the highest profile and most closely considered issues the legislature is working on this year. The bill to legalize, regulate, and tax marijuana for Minnesotans 21 and older passed in the House this week. The Senate is debating its version right now as we speak. The bill has a lot of opponents, from law enforcement concerned about impaired driving to parents concerned about substance abuse and mental health to some hemp producers worried that it will hurt their industry But it also has lots of supporters. 21 other states and the District of Columbia have already fully legalized marijuana, and polls show a majority of the public backs legalization. One of the supporters, and someone who's been doing a lot of heavy lifting to get the bill passed, is DFL Representative Jess Hansen of Burnsville. She's one of the co-authors of the House bill, and she joins me now. Thanks for coming by today. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, Let me ask, uh, first of all, how did you get involved in this issue, and why is it important to you? Sure. So I grew up in a neighborhood that was poor and seeing the way that the war on drugs really affected my community is what opened my eyes to it. I went to college. I have my undergraduate degree in social work and I knew I wanted to get involved in justice issues. And so I collected some information and I connected with some folks in the community. They had a vision for what they wanted to see a legal program in Minnesota look like. And it was really based on the foundation of doing the right thing making sure that we were righting the wrongs of our past and doing some reparations for the people who had been most harmed by the war on drugs, particularly cannabis legalization. And that pulled me in, and I've nerded out on it ever since. And one of the uh, things I didn't mention that the bill does is it expunges records for people who have been convicted of uh, marijuana offenses in the past. Yeah, it's going to be one of the best models in the nation, too. So not only are we doing the right thing by expunging the records that people have gotten as a result of cannabis prohibition, these are charges that have stopped people from getting housing, people who have had impacts from CPS, people have um, been unable to secure employment, and so many other really important things that just help us live full and wonderful lives. And so expunging these records is first and foremost uh, the most important part. But we wanted to take it a step further and make sure that we didn't require people who had these records to have to come to their government to ask them to remove those records. And so what you'll see happen in Minnesota is what we're calling automatic expungement. It's the first of its kind in the nation, and we're working really closely with all of our state agencies to make sure that we're making this a process that works. Uh, We'll also have a board that will review felony convictions and resentence as appropriate. So people who have felony cannabis convictions will also see that those charges will be addressed as well. And another thing that the bill does that I think is important to you, it it has uh, what they call the social equity uh, applicants, people who are looking for licenses in this new business. And some people would get sort of a, uh, they'd be prioritized. How would that work? So social equity applicants in a legal model of cannabis legalization is important because the war on drugs has disproportionately harmed black and brown communities. We just heard Senator May Quaid on the Senate floor talk about the words of John Ehrlichman, who said he knew they knew what they were doing when they enacted this, and it was intentionally to disrupt communities. And so we find that it's important to um, do the right thing when you know better. So when we know better, we do better. I was raised that if you make a mistake, it's important that you make up for that. Um, And as a nation, we have a lot of that reconciliation to do. And so as we move into this industry, 
industry to create record profits, potentially for some more than others. We want to make sure those who have been harmed the most have the opportunity to profit as well. This is not going to necessarily pick winners and losers in this because the war on drugs has already picked a lot of winners and losers. So people who have never seen a hand up or a handout, as some people like to say, um, are really going to get a chance to participate in an industry that has brutalized their communities. That's important to us. And I have had a lot of conversations with people about that since the beginning. The community wants this. Minnesotans have widely said they want this. And so that's what we're going to do and keep our word. And so we're talking about people of color, people from low-income areas. Uh, I think there's a provision in there for people who were uh, dishonorably discharged mm-hmm. from the military because of marijuana. Is that is that about right? Yeah. So that's the goal is to make sure that the people who um, had their lives the, disrupted the most are those who can have an opportunity to um, be be in this industry. We'll have grant programs available because we know that access to capital is a part of the problem as well. Um, making sure we have access to social capital, not just the financial capital, but the people who know how to help with these um, businesses. So our can train programs um, are going to help make sure that we have a, a very robust workforce as well. So we don't want to just legalize this and leave people high and dry, no pun intended, um, to not have the resources and help that they need to to get into this industry. Um, I know one thing the House bill does, it's, it keeps the tax at uh, the, like 8%, mm-hmm. and that's to pay for actually doing the enforcement and the licensing and mm-hmm. everything. Um, but it's also deliberately kept low because you want to sort of squeeze out the black market and you want it, the marijuana products to be affordable. Right. How well, important they- is that? The legal, the, the legacy cannabis business and industry exists right now. It's just not standing in the light. And what this industry and this legalization will do will allow not only new businesses to be formed, but we want to make sure that we're also allowing fee- folks to bring their businesses that are currently illegal above board and become a legal business. Everybody is safer when we do that. Prohibition has caused way more harm than good. So it's important that we keep that tax rate low so that we have the opportunity to disincentivize the legacy market from continuing to stay in place. Uh, if we don't do that, we've seen states that have already uh, done this before. Obviously, we're not the first. And when the tax rate is too high, the legacy market stays alive. And we really don't want that in the state. We know that drug dealers don't check IDs. We cannot maintain a 21 plus market if we continue to allow that legacy business to exist. Um, And so we don't want to make it hard for people. We want to give them a hand. We want people to come above board and use the skills they've been using in this underground industry uh, to come above board and really be part of this new group. This is a craft industry built by and for Minnesotans. It has been built with community. So we've really done this in a way that brings in current cannabis consumers, people from some of those legacy businesses to make sure that they've had a voice in this as well. Um, I, I just go quickly on the tax question. I know the tax in the Senate bill is a little bit higher and they want to use uh, that differential to, to give money to local governments to help them. Mm-hmm. Uh, are you opposed to that necessarily? I'm not opposed to it, but we do need to make sure we're being open about keeping the tax rate low. If it's too high, it's not going to shut down that legacy market. I think a more productive conversation is talking about tearing it out over years. I just heard uh, Senator Hostile had an amendment about that in the Senate. And these are things that we'll hash out in our conference committees. And so as we go into this conversation, we, of course, want to support local governments. They have a local licensing option that they can utilize uh, for, especially if they have bad actors in their community, there's zoning information. And there is more that already really supports our local businesses and local control. The challenge that I hear most people talking about that I just I really want to address and I think I've addressed in other spaces is that full opt-outs for communities are excessively ineffective. We've seen that in California and Colorado where when some cities can opt out entirely and others 
you know, participate, it really just causes a disparity across the state. And this is one Minnesota. It's important to us that we have a state to state border to border um, um, network and industry that works for everybody. We are not leaving anybody out of this cannabis industry. And we want to make sure everybody has a chance to participate as well. What about some of the opposition you hear about, you know, not being able to test uh, drivers Mm -hmm. to see if they're high, um, about, you know, mental health problems that, that marijuana can cause, especially in young people. Um, what's the response to that? My response is that if we don't do something, it's going to get, you know, continue the ki- the kids having access on that piece specifically. Kids already have unfeathered access to this right now. If we are serious about protecting kids, we need a 21 plus market and we need people who check IDs and have consequences for giving cannabis to somebody under the age of 21. Um, some of the other pieces about intoxicated driving, we know that we need to continue to invest in that. Both, it sounds like the again, the Senate just adopted a, a um, amendment to make sure we have um, more money going into that, and then that is in the House bill as well. So making sure we're investing in those the technology because really it does not exist in any way around the country right now. So it's important that we invest in that, but we can't pretend like that technology exists and we're just not taking advantage of it, right? It's really important for people to understand that we ha- it has to be developed for the whole nation. Um, and then in regards to kids' mental health, you know, we've actually seen that in states where we legalize, youth use tends to go down because it's harder for them to get access to it. And that's the goal, right, is we want parents to be uh, informed. We have... Sp- a lot of public health investments to do public awareness, teach people about safe use, what that looks like. It's important people have the education to understand uh, how to um, help their kids if their kids end up in this situation. None of that exists right now, but it can exist in a world with full legalization and a market where we really bring everything into the light. DFL Representative Jess Hansen of Burnsville, thanks so much for coming by. We'll keep an eye on this and we'll see what happens. Thank you so much for having me. This is Politics Friday. I'm Mike Mulcahy. Now let's listen back to some of the voices we heard at the Capitol this week. It's like a bunch of five-year-olds playing a board game, changing the rules halfway through the game. Well, that's what we're doing in the House right now. That's how we're legislating. We are making laws in this chamber. We are actually doing serious things. Senator Farnsworth. Thank you, Mr. President. Well, that is extremely disappointing that we can't stand up to the insidious power that algebra has in our schools. It reminds me, some years ago, I was asked to do a public service announcement for June Dairy Month. And uh, jokingly, we came up with the slogan, milk, cheese, ice cream, and butter, all things that come from an udder. And here we sit once again, it's not enough, more regulation. So we're going to put more and more screws into the people doing it right for the few people like down in the metro. But I guarantee you, there is nobody out where I live taking advantage of their employees. They are our neighbor's kids. They are our brother-in-laws. They are, they're all people. How long do you think I would get reelected if I was screwing the people down there? Thank you, Madam Speaker. And we are on the cusp of doing something in our state that will save lives because we want... Gun sense now. You've got it. <laughs> Nia was a lover of people. On June 13th of 2020, while riding as a passenger in a vehicle, a repeat offender decided that 
Mia's life was worthless, decided that he had the right to take her life when he rightfully should not have even possessed a weapon. At 23 years old, my baby girl's life ended. He murdered my baby. He shot her one time in the head as she was riding as a passenger in a car 3.1 miles up the street from here. And I have always said, I will walk these streets, I will stand, I will march, I will hold signs, I will do, I will walk the soles off my shoes for my daughter because no one has the right to take a life. Every Minnesotan has the right to live free from gun violence. But if you're talking about somebody who is legally possessing a gun, then I don't care where they are, the, behind the gas, wherever they are, there's an expectation on Minnesotans that before they hand over that gun, that they should get proof of a background check. And that is an expectation that we would have of responsible gun owners and, and we would have of irresponsible gun owners to say, if you're not going to be responsible, we're going to hold you accountable, and that's what this does. The logic doesn't follow how somebody who is going to, to conduct a sale out of the trunk of their car at, behind the gas and sip, knowingly to somebody who is going to go commit a crime, will say... So uh, I've got four FFLs ready to go. We'll just drive over to, to Bernie's house, and, and uh, he'll, com he'll do the background check uh, on this illegal gun sale. That's preposterous. But if I was going to commit insurance fraud, I would not do it with my wife. She would not be a willing participant in that scheme. She would sooner divorce me, and she would turn me in if she had knowledge. So very bad choice for me to try and commit insurance fraud with my wife. Do I want them guys to get a background check? Do I want them to spend 75, 80, 100 bucks to get a background check? No. And the 20 year requirement to keep this paperwork, do you have your marriage license still? Do you know where that is? Okay, a couple people. I guarantee you the majority of Minnesotans don't know where that document is. And that's a rather important one if you ask me. We're here to celebrate Matt and Aparna, who have chosen to commit themselves to each other for life. In other words, they're getting hitched. Congratulations. Today, I choose you. I choose you today, tomorrow, and every day after. I vow, I vow to love, support, and be your partner in every aspect of life, and to always have your back. I promise to listen, challenge, and grow with you, and I'm so excited to begin this new chapter of our lives and create a bucket full of happy and wondrous memories. I'll always be there for you when you're in trouble, to be with you in your time of need. To talk, to cry, to sit still in silence, or to just hold your hand. I vow to be the most dependable and trustworthy person in your life. I vow that I'll continue to make you laugh each and every morning, throughout the day, and once more before we go to bed. And I promise that my love for you will continue to grow every single day as we spend the rest of our lives together. Kiss and make it official, your husband and wife. You know, uh, that was a wedding at the Capitol, and that's not uncommon necessarily, but the voices you heard of the people getting married in the rotunda there were our own producer, Matthew Alvarez, and his now wife, Aparna Ingleshwar. Uh, Matt has assured me that they do know where their marriage certificate is because they got it in the mail yesterday, and Aparna even made a PDF copy 
so they can pull it up on their 20th anniversary. This is Politics Friday on NPR News. I'm Mike Mulcahy. We're going to round out the program today, as we usually do, by checking in with some of the journalists who cover Minnesota government and politics. We have a special guest today, our old friend Brianna Biersbach, who writes for the Star Tribune. Brianna, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. And NPR's own Brian Bax is here as well. Thanks for coming, Brian. Hey, Mike, you worked Matthew so hard, he couldn't even leave the Capitol <laughs> for his own wedding. Yeah, that's right. It's, uh, you know, he's a, he's a hardworking guy and he just doesn't want to leave. So congratulations to the newlyweds. Uh, it's been another super busy week at the Capitol. Uh, one issue does seem to have risen above the others, and that is legal marijuana. Um, as we mentioned a few minutes ago, the House passed its bill earlier this week, and the Senate is debating its version right now as we speak here at uh, the noon hour on Friday. Brian, uh, this has really become kind of the issue of the session, right? That's right. We're about an hour into the Senate debate today. It could go who knows how long. They've made one change already uh, to give local governments more power to limit the re- the number of licenses based on the population side to as few as one for the smallest cities and counties. Uh, and we saw an effort to table the bill that failed on a party line vote. That could be the vote that, mm. that determines whether this moves ahead today or if it kind of stalls out. But I would imagine it's going to move ahead and into further negotiations, which they have to wrap up by May 22nd. A lot of people want it done sooner. We'll see. What do you think, Brianna? Is this the year that this is going to happen? kind of looks like it. it. It seems like there's a lot of pressure on Democrats to do something this year. I mean, of course, they could let it roll over into the next session. You know, they often do policy bills like this in the second year of the biennium. But I think given that they have this trifecta and their base has been asking for this for some time, and they've been saying we're going to do it if only we had all the levers of um, control in government, now they have it. And I think that there's a, kind of enough pressure behind it that it really definitely could happen. And Mike, don't expect that this is going to be the last word. Even if they pass a bill this year, there's going to be some rulemaking involved. And lawmakers can come back next year and clean up things that have cropped up as problems with this. It's going to be a while before most Minnesotans are going to be able to find a dispensary on the corner to buy marijuana from a retail perspective, although they will, would be able to grow their own uh, starting the summer. Well, I was going to ask you about that because um, with this pressure to get it done, I mean, the bill is going to pass. It's going to get a lot of attention. Uh, we're going to talk about it as we have been. But yeah, it's going to it, it's going to take a while for everything to get into place and, and even to grow the product. Supporters are telling me today that they think it might be 18 months before there's enough supply where the, the retail establishments would open because they, they don't want to open them and have no supply because it would be too expensive and and just basically push people more toward illicit sales. Mm-hmm. Uh, so so they are – it has to be grown in Minnesota as well because of the federal restrictions. It would still be illegal on the federal level, so it's not like they could bring it in from Colorado or Michigan or some of these other states that have it. They would have to grow it here. So, Brianna, we're going in, We're going to go into a weird gray area, even if this does pass. Yeah, and I think you look at what happened just last year with, um, you know, hemp-based THC products coming on the shelves. There there was no re- regulation or not a lot of regulation around that, and they're coming back to talk about it. I do think they expect – and I've heard people talk about this as, as something they're going to have to figure out along the way. And, and I, our colleagues at the paper did stories on other states that have done mm-hmm. this, and they have had growing pains too, and I think that – that happens in any state where they're figuring this out. No pun intended. <laughs> it's hard to avoid the pun sometimes. Um, all right. Well, let's go back to a more uh, conventional issue for the Capitol, and that is uh, taxes. 
Um, Senate, uh, the Senate Tax Committee released its version of a bill. The House passed its bill on Thursday night. Uh, Brianna, what are the what what are the parameters looking like here as the tax bill shapes up? Well, I was actually pretty surprised. You know, the Senate has been the chamber where you've heard from Democrats more about full repeal of Social Security taxes. But we actually saw when their bill came out something that matched what the House wants to do. Um, and that we knew that was a pressure point. We knew something would be come out of their bill, but they want to do um, a more modest approach um, compared to a full repeal, of course. But they're also doing a version of rebate checks. They're also doing a version of a child tax credit, which the governor had really wanted. Uh, but they're also doing um, some some funding for families with kids in child care, especially mm. young families. So they have a pretty big package of credits there. Um, you know, we'll have to see. The, the House didn't include those child care credits. The numbers are slightly different on the rebate checks. But I was also struck by how similar some of the numbers are right out of the gate between the House and Senate on Social Security, on the rebate checks. You can kind of start to see where they might come together on some of these hmm. issues already. Well, uh, and one big difference is the House bill raises income taxes on top earners. Mm-hmm. What do you think, Brian? Uh, what happened with that Social Security thing? It did seem like it was shaping up at the beginning of the session to be kind of a friction point, but now it seems like they're, they're all on board, at least the Democrats are. It costs a lot of money. And so the way that they did it is is there's going to be roughly three-quarters of, of Social Security beneficiaries who get ben- Social Security income wouldn't pay a tax on the amount they receive because they would put the cap at $100,000 of income, you know, Social Security plus the other income you make. And so anyone beneath that for couples would, would see no tax. And that's even going to cost them a couple hundred million dollars a year. To do the full repeal was like $600 million because there's a lot of people above that and they, they would get the tax break too. So they stopped there. I want to say there's a handy-dandy chart in the Star Tribune – Hmm. Give them a quick plug to that. That breaks I should down the, be plugging it. <laughs> breaks down the differences, but yeah, the the one one big pressure point still to be decided is where to get more money to kind of pay for some of these tax cuts they're doing. We've got the surplus, but that's not an ongoing stream for the most part. So they have to figure out a way to make it all fit. There's the fifth tier in the House. Senate doesn't do that, but the Senate does do this new corporate tax that no one seems to know exactly how it would be assessed or whether the money's going to come in. And that would raise about $450 million. That seems like they're going to use that in both chambers. But again, still some time to, to figure this out. It's it's really tricky. They have this $3 billion target and they really have to stick within it to the point where the numbers get kind of strange, right? Like the rebate check for the Senate, we asked sort of why is it 279 for individuals and 558 for married joint filers? That seems like a s- sort of specific number and it's because it had to fit hmm. within this target. Um, so it's it's interesting how they're making the math work and, and it'll be interesting to see how they make the numbers work in the final deal. I, I'm trying to figure out how it works politically because you have the, the on the House floor last night, we heard this is a $3 billion tax cut, the biggest tax cut in state history. The Republicans are saying, well, you know, you said you wanted to give it all back. Is this the case of the incredible shrinking rebate almost? So um, who's right, Brian? <laughs> oh, boy, that's a tough question. <laughs> but but keep in mind on the House, nobody tried to take out those those two big tax increases last night. They They... There wasn't even a vote on them. There was a vote on the Social Security appeal, but they didn't even call for a recorded vote. So, you know, nobody's going to have to necessarily account for that. In the Senate, they've already given these Democrats that wanted a full repeal. A couple of them have got a chance to vote for a full repeal uh, in committee, presuming they raise more money to pay for it. So 
uh, like you said, it's it's hard to figure out how the numbers all work. And this isn't the only tax area. There's tax increases in other areas of the budget. So mm-hmm. no matter what, Democrats are, are probably going to raise somebody's taxes this year, including a payroll tax to pay for paid leave. That bill's coming up next week. Uh, so it, it's not as easy as saying that people are only going to see tax cuts. Most people are going to see at least nominal tax increases on some part, but they might be have more money back through the tax cuts that they're talking about. What was interesting about the Senate bill's release this week, though, was that the Senate author of that bill, Senator Ann Rest, was very adamant that she did not include tax increases on individuals mm-hmm. and on families. Um, she had this worldwide reporting requirement, which would hit businesses, but she was very adamant that she didn't include um, the capital gains tax that the governor included and um, this fifth tier uh, because they didn't want to raise taxes on individuals. So it was interesting that she emphasized that point. Mm-hmm. Um, and I imagine they'll go into negotiations uh, with that you know, saying strongly they don't want to do that. And uh, with just a few seconds left, speaking of negotiations, uh, all these big spending bills headed to conference committee next week, Brian? Yeah, conference committee. What a strange thing. We haven't seen those this year, but those are when the House and Senate come together. They're trying to merge their plans into single things they can send to the governor, and they are even talking about maybe get done early. I don't know. Well, we'll see. Well, I believe (laughs) it when I see it. Anyway, we can't get done early. We can't get done late. We have to end on time, and we're done. Brian Bax, thanks a lot, as always. And Brianna Biersbach, thanks you. Thank, thank you. you so much for coming <laughs> by. That'll do it for our Friday program. Matthew Alvarez, newly married, is our producer. Alex Simpson and Jess Berg handled the technical end. I'm Mike Mulcahy. Have a great weekend. We'll see you again here next week. I'm Mike Mulcahy. Thanks for listening to the Politics Friday podcast on NPR News. If you want to catch the show live on the radio, tune in each Friday at noon. Join us for interviews with lawmakers and conversations about what's been happening at the Capitol and beyond.